Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker. I'll be joined later in the show by Moya Lovian McLean. Um, and we have so much to talk about tonight. The Tory government have dropped a key climate change pledge they made to the rest of the world, breaking promises. Nick Ferrari, um, I love this clip, gets triggered by a pro-Palestine guest. And more bad news on Britain's rail service. Also, we should quickly mention teachers are out on strike today, so a message of solidarity to the NEU. As you know, whenever I talk about education on this show, I feel quite passionately about it. I worked in schools for two years. The reason I stopped, it was too goddamn hard. I went into journalism and said I don't have to wake up so early. Um, so all of my solidarity to you guys out on strike today. Let's get straight on with our first story. Labour and Tory politicians might be reluctant to offer NHS staff more pay, but they're clearly feeling very generous when it comes to warm words for our National Health Service. To celebrate the 75th birthday of the NHS, both Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer spoke at a service at Westminster Abbey. How sweet! And Rishi Sunak put out this video from his Twitter account. On July 5th, the new National Health Service starts. The 5th of July, 1948. The NHS was born. It's changed a lot since then, but some things never change. Life saved, babies born, care given. An NHS free at the point of use. At every moment, NHS staff are there doing their job. It's not a pretty job, it's hard work. It's backbreaking. 25, 26, 27, 28, 29. Long hours, stressful moments. It's bedpans and fluids. It's blood, sweat, and tears. NHS staff do the impossible. 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. The NHS isn't a symbol, it's a service. Built on the hard work and dedication of over 1 million people to the nurses and doctors, the carers and support staff, we say thank you for 75 years. Now, I found some of that pretty frustrating. They do the impossible every day. Why don't we just make it possible? You know, what other job do we say? You've got to do the impossible every day. Why not just pay them enough and make sure there are enough of them so that they can do their job properly and easily and it doesn't seem impossible by the end of the day? I mean, it's never going to be too easy, but I mean, comfortably, let's say. So you're not always thinking, how am I possibly going to get through to the end of the day? which is what NHS staff feel like at the moment, as you'll all have heard from people you know in the NHS or from people who've appeared in the media. Um, nonetheless, a reasonably sweet video, I suppose. Um, Sunak tweeted it with his own thank you message, but NHS workers themselves aren't convinced the government has the real interests of the health service at heart. The head of the British Medical Association has given an interview to The Guardian. Um, so they've headlined it like this. Most doctors think ministers want to destroy NHS BMA boss says, and Philip Banfield, so that is the chair of the BMA, says health service is in state of managed decline and may not survive next five or ten years. This is a quote from the BMA chair. This government has to demonstrate that it is not setting out to destroy the NHS, which it is failing to do at this point in time. It is a very common comment that I hear from both doctors and patients that this government is consciously running the NHS down. And if you run it down far enough, it's going to lead to destruction. You'll struggle to find someone among doctors on the front line who thinks otherwise, because that's what it feels like. It was a conscious political decision to underfund and undervalue the NHS as a national asset and its staff, not just doctors, but staff across 
the board. The end point of this is that the NHS does not survive another 75 years. I would be very surprised if the NHS in its current form survives the next five or 10 years at the rate that it's declining. Um, So that was from the BMA chair. So speaking about what doctors are saying. And any suspicions about the Tories' commitment to the NHS in its current form won't have been assuaged by former Health Secretary Sajid Javid. He's been telling various outlets he wants a royal commission to look at a radical rethinking of the NHS. He explained his stance on Radio 4. We'll rightly be marking the 75th birthday of the NHS this week. And, but alongside that celebration, I think we need a, an honest conversation uh, about the future uh, of the NHS. Because when you look at the health outcomes, and I think that's ultimately, I think that's what m- would matter to people, are the health outcomes. When you compare the UK to similar countries or with universal health care systems, they tend to have, on average, much better outcomes. In other countries, they do not solely rely on general taxation to fund health care, which is obviously what we do here in the UK. That is a, a principle that's been there right from the start. And for early years of the NHS, it served as well. But the world has changed. You know, we, We've gone from a world of you're dealing primarily with infectious diseases. That's what the NHS was originally set up for, things like polio and diphtheria and things to much more sort of complex illnesses like cancers and cardiovascular diseases and multiple illnesses and and a much uh, more aged population. And in other countries, the kind of countries we might compare ourselves against to, they don't just rely on the taxpayer to fund the NHS. Privately, when I speak to colleagues in parliament in all political parties, that they... They essentially agree with pretty much everything I've just discussed with you. But publicly, they are so reluctant uh, to say it because they just don't want to get their head shot off. And, uh, and and instead, they'd rather sort of lean back into that adulation mode and just pretend everything is fine when they know it's not. Someone who isn't reluctant to speak publicly about the kind of reform Sajid Javid wants is Tony Blair. His think tank has come out with a report on the future of the NHS, which urges an expanded role for the private sector, including by using the NHS app to point users to private healthcare offers and offering co-payment options. Someone who doesn't seem to agree is the current health secretary. He's penned an article for The Times with this headline. Steve Barclay, happy anniversary to our NHS, a source of national pride and distancing himself from Sajid Javid, so one of his predecessors, Barclay writes this. Clearly, there are pressures on services, particularly following the pandemic, and as a result of changing demographics and health needs. It is important the NHS changes and adapts in response to this, and improving technology and medical advancements. But this requires constant evolution, not a big bang moment. I believe the model of the NHS free at the point of care is a source of national pride, and I know that my colleagues across government are equally fully committed to these founding principles. So I suppose a clear rebuttal there um, to Sajid Javid saying what he is talking about is not what we in government are thinking about. Um, For his part, the Shadow Health Secretary Wes Streeting put distance between himself and Tony Blair. I think we've already got a two-tier system in this country where people who can afford it are paying to go private and those who can't are being left behind. In fact, that's one of the reasons I've said, and not uncontroversially, that if there's spare capacity in the private sector, we will pay for people to use it on NHS terms, free at the point of use so they don't pay a penny. Where I want to get to, if I'm the country's next health secretary, is an NHS that's so good that no one feels forced to go private. Because that's what the last Labour government did, ironically. You know, use of the private sector fell off a cliff after 13 years because we delivered the shortest waiting times 
and the highest patient satisfaction in history. So, of course, people say, well, why would I go private? The NHS is there for me when I need it. Okay, so you completely disagree with what Tony Blair is suggesting, that people who can afford to uh, pay should do that in order for uh, to free up capacity for others. I, I do, because I think that an NHS that's publicly funded, free at the point of use, is the fairest and most efficient way to organise a system. And if we... If you're wealthy and have the ability to pay more, then the tax system can do that very efficiently and effectively. And when you look at Labour's policies, I mean, we're not, if, I know we've taken some flack for this, but I think we have rightly not made loads and loads of spending commitments because we know the public finance are in a mess. Where we have made spending commitments, we have gone for fair sources of raising the money, like abolishing the non-DOM tax status, because we think wealthy people who make Britain their home should pay their taxes here too. That's current and former politicians arguing about the form um, the NHS should take. What about workers on the front line, though? On the 75th birthday of the NHS, sorry, a morale within the frontline workforce seems pretty goddamn low. Um, Here's A&E doctor Andrew Myerson. Morale right now on the NHS frontline is is pretty terrible. Every time I speak with uh, with juniors who are going through the the, the training program uh, out of uh, out of medical school, it's the the foundation program for the first two years. Uh, everybody is here for you know two years, and then they are going off to Australia, New Zealand, Canada, uh, places where our labor is valued, uh, where pain conditions are such that you know you can you can have a reasonable quality of you know of life. You know we have uh, you know the worst waiting list in NHS history, seven point four million people long. We have you know patients that are waiting for you know uh, you know upwards of fifteen hours in our AE department sometimes people that are dying at home dying on backs of ambulances dying in our waiting rooms because we can't treat them soon enough because we just don't have enough staff and so the NHS is a very very difficult place to work right now uh, as we celebrate the seventy fifth anniversary it's incredibly demoralizing and you know with the state of the service and the state of this government that just does not care about NHS staff or patients it's no wonder that so many of my colleagues are are leaving the, the profession in record numbers why staff suicide is you know is at record highs right now. It's uh, it's it's no wonder that so many people are leaving because uh, morale is, is is pretty terrible right now. I mean the main problems that we have is a decade of severe underfunding. Uh, there was a Financial Times article recently that uh, that said that the NHS has been underfunded by forty billion pounds a year for the last decade. Uh, the the French Health Service uh, they spend I think twenty five percent more than we do on on healthcare. The Germans about fifty percent more than we do. Um, there is a massive difference in the amount of funding that comparable economies in Europe are devoting to their healthcare, And we just haven't done that over the last decade. And that's been an intentional plan from this government, from successive conservative governments, to underfund the NHS and push more people into private health care to grow the, the private health care industry. And, you know, just emblematic of this, you know, uh, uh, within the last couple of years, uh, a major American uh, uh, hospital, the Cleveland Clinic, just opened up a massive new hospital uh, right next to Buckingham Palace. Uh, and that says a lot. You know, we now are now living in a two-tier system uh, in the United Kingdom where wealthy people can access private health care. They can access it rapidly. They can access, you know, high-quality, world-class health care. They're paying for it, paying massive amounts of money for it, while the rest of, you know, uh, working people are suffering on the longest waiting list in NHS history where, you know, you can't see your GP for a couple of weeks. You can't be seen in A&E for, you know, under 15 hours. You can't be seen, uh, uh, you know, you can't get your cancer referral for, you know, a couple of months. And people are suffering on that. And this government just does not care. You know, just look on social media, look around, uh, uh, you know, ads everywhere. Everybody's being bombarded with uh, ads to see a private GP, to get private testing done, to be seen by private clinicians. 
because they want to push more people into this industry. And at the same time, you know, run the NHS down uh, so that, you know, that there is one excellent level of care for wealthy people and, you know, one, you know, very poor, under-resourced public system for the rest of us. And that is unacceptable here in the sixth wealthiest country on the planet. You know, when I think about the level of care that I'm able to give to patients here in the NHS, uh, it is, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's something that I very much value as a clinician that I don't have to worry about any of the stuff that we worry about in the States. I don't have to ask for a credit card before I see them. I don't have to, you know, I don't have to argue with insurance companies about the type of treatment that they're getting. Um, I just care for my patients according to national guidelines. And, you know, that is the best way to deliver healthcare. And, you know, and, and so it is such a huge honor to be working in the NHS, but, you know, this system has been failed by, you know, 10 years of, you know, catastrophic underfunding, under planning, under staffing, under resourcing. I wish that, you know, on the 75th anniversary today, we were doing uh, a lot better than we were, uh, but uh, we are in the worst crisis we've ever seen. And so if we want the NHS to survive for the next 75 years, uh, then we have to fight for it. And now is that time. Uh, we are in the worst crisis we've ever faced. And we, we need we need the public to support all striking NHS workers and to uh, and to to not believe the the garbage that uh, that that this government is, is is feeding them right now. That was Andrew Myerson giving a pretty depressing account of working on the front line in the NHS on its seventy fifth birthday. I'm going to go into a bit more detail about this this policy row um, that's that's going on between current politicians and former politicians, as we showed you at the very start of this segment. And to do that, joining me now is Chris Thomas. He's head of the IPPR's Health Commission and author of the book, The Five Health Frontiers. Um, I suppose before we get into the weeds of that policy debate, can you tell me, I suppose, do you mind if I call you a wonk from a wonk's perspective? How fit a state is the NHS currently in? A pretty disastrous one, to, to be honest. So um, if, if, if uh, we look across the indicators, most of the lights that we have are flashing red, that's uh, waiting lists, you know, 7.4 million people in England alone waiting for elective care, or what we might call uh, important but non-urgent care. And then across things like cancer services, dementia services, whatever it might be, um, lots of challenges there as well. So our polling um, to to try to quantify how much disruption there is today um, suggests that since 2020 alone, uh, about 17.5 million people have um, have faced some kind of difficulty, some kind of disruption in accessing the healthcare that they need, and of course that means um, naturally that the health gets worse, but also that you know because healthcare matters to so much more that their lives are just getting worse as well. Whether that's their ability to um, do hobbies and, and engage in passions, or whether that's you know keeping uh, employment or, or whatever it might be, lots of people attributing poor healthcare to that. So. In terms of the state of the NHS, you know, lots of difficulties, but also in terms of what the NHS provides to the rest of society, that's breaking down as well. Let's talk about the sort of policy debate that's going on at the moment. And lots of people have used the opportunity of the 75th birthday to come out with their stances on the NHS. Sajid Javid there is making this argument that like, you know, people might like the NHS, but it's a little bit outdated. And if you compare it to other countries where they still have universal health care, so, you know, principally you're thinking of continental Europe or Canada or Australia, um, these are places which have a different health model, which is still universal, so everyone can kind of use it, and you get better health outcomes, so people are less likely to to die of cancer, for example. I mean, what do you make of uh, of the argument he's put forward to say maybe this just isn't the best system? Yeah, I think it's uh, you know kind of being polite, ludicrous. Um, there is no evidence, to my mind, that um, 
there is a link between the the kind of funding mechanism uh, and and the kind of outcomes we see in countries uh, with social insurance uh, style systems that are doing well. There are often countries in proximity to them with NHS style systems uh, or closer to the NHS style of system that are also doing well. So there doesn't seem to be any causal relationship between the two. Um, I think the fundamental flaw in that logic is essentially uh, what they're saying is that um, this government uh, almost uniquely have have uh, starved the NHS of funding over 13 years, way below historical averages. And then the kind of superimposition is that uh, the, the model doesn't allow for, for funding to enter the system uh it 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 just seems very strange to me and almost uh you know kind of um uh, yeah just completely um devoid of evidence could you talk a bit about sort of the different healthcare systems and which seem to work because i think you know conversation in this country i think understandably often just involves the the uk and the united states the united states sort of hellish the uk potentially underfunded but at least we can all use it now where has a sort of nhs type system that is gold standard and really works and i suppose what is the difference between that and the kind of system they have in France and Germany? It's kind of the, the classic Bismarck, uh, Bevan split. But uh, if, if, if we're looking for systems that feel pretty comparable to, to the NHS and that the vast majority, at least, of, of funding comes from general taxation, then uh, Canada, uh, Spain, pretty similar systems. Spain, good outcomes. Um, perhaps one of the differences that, that that system has that's quite interesting is uh, that it that it has a much more place led, much more devolved style of uh, of, of approaching healthcare management. Um, but you know, if 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 I was to explain why some of those systems do well and we struggle, I think it's less about the supply question. A lot of the NHS policy that we've heard today is about how we supply healthcare, and it's more about how these countries manage demand. A lot of the places that do really well on health outcomes take pressure off their health system by getting the things that drive health right like housing like social security um you see that you know that that that's pretty clear in some of the scandinavian countries um and we uh, as as the uk over the last 13 years have have entirely lacked any kind of demand management prevention strategy um and that's really the big difference that's that's one of the things that separates us and and i think makes our outcomes so much uh, so much worse you know, we've had 13 years of, of, of Tory rule. I don't think many people watching this will have any faith that they actually wanted to make the NHS better. Now, people have mixed views about what West Streeting wants, but it seems more plausible that the Labour Party will want to improve outcomes to some degree. I mean, if, if they are serious about this, what should they be promising? What should their priorities be when they get into power? Or if, sorry, I should say, if they get into power? Either political party, I mean, what they should be pledging to my mind is that uh, that the NHS will be the provider of choice. Um the thing that sometimes get lost when we talk about the, the founding principles that, that Naib Evan brought forward when he formed the NHS um, is that he had a very clear focus on universalise the best. He knew that mediocrity was the enemy of the NHS being a sustainable coalition and something that, um, that, that, that could continue to offer people the best care regardless of means. So making sure the NHS is the provider of choice and that uh, people... Uh, don't really have any rational reason to go private, I think is a good aspiration. Obviously, the question is how you do that. Um, for me, there is a, a, a funding question to that, um, which is that we we do underfund our healthcare system in the UK compared to comparable countries that do better. So I think you know, a conversation around that is is entirely necessary. 
but there is a reform question as well. And I think uh, for the NHS, that's about getting care into the community, doing more prevention. But fundamentally for the UK, it's about doing the things that, that take pressure off the NHS at source. Um, good quality housing, a basis of good education, all of those things will make it much, much easier to deliver a sustainable kind of high quality, world-class national health service going forward. Chris Thomas, thank you so much for joining us this evening. We really appreciate it. That point about, um, you know, how universalism requires luxury or I mean, you know, a gold standard, let's say, is really important. And Iron Bevan, on an issue that I know more about, which is housing, he was health and housing minister. And one thing he really understood was that for the social housing model to work, it needed to be good housing. It needed to be the kind of housing that people from all classes would want to live in. And then you would have this sort of cross-class support for it. That does exist in Vienna. So they managed to do that sort of gold standard universalism where you've got all sorts of different people in society living in that housing, which means that you can maintain support for it. I think he, uh, Bevan talked about the tapestry of a mixed community where a butcher and a lawyer and I, mean, I don't know the, uh, the quote verbatim, but along those lines where they all live on the same street in the same community. We have Moya, Lovian, McLean on the line. How did you celebrate the NHS's 75th birthday? Did you blow out any candles? No, I got incredibly sick and then went to an overstuffed A&E waiting room. I didn't actually do that. <laughs> it would have been even more pressure on the NHS, NHS's 75th birthday, I think. We need to deliberately go and fill up the space. Um, but I'm very glad we've reached 75. And here's to another 75 years. Let's make sure the Tories don't get their way. Next story. Climate change has historically been caused by the rich countries of the global north. However, its consequences will be felt most sharply in the poorer countries of the global south. Now, in recognition of that fact at the 2009 COP summit, the developed world pledged that by 2020, they would collectively transfer $100 billion a year to developing countries to help mitigate and adapt to climate change. But 2020 arrived, and that target had not been met. Now, that fact became a sticking point at COP26, which was held in Glasgow in 2021. The developing countries were saying, why should we believe anything that gets said here in 2009? You pledged this, then you broke your promise. Good point. Well, to try and break the deadlock and win back the trust of developing nations, the rich countries recommitted to the target and different countries made commitments to meet it. For their part, the UK, who were hosting the conference and wanted it to be a success, pledged to double its climate aid up to £11.6 billion over a five-year period. But now, The Guardian has revealed this. UK plans to drop flagship £11.6 billion climate pledge. And then they say disclosure provokes fury, as Rishi Sunak accused of betraying populations vulnerable to global heating. So let's go to some quotes from the article. They say, a leaked briefing note to ministers given to the Foreign Office lays out reasons for dropping the UK's contribution to meeting the global $100 billion a year commitment to developing countries. It says, quote, our commitment to double our international climate finance to $11.6 billion was made in 2019 when we were still at 0.7% of GDP spent on international aid and pre-COVID. This note adds that to meet it by the deadline would be a huge challenge because of new pressures, including help for Ukraine, being included in the aid budget. To meet the £11.6 billion target by 2026, government officials have calculated that it would have to spend 83% of the Foreign Office's official development assistance budget on the International Climate Fund. Civil servants said in the leaked document that this would squeeze out room for other commitments, such as humanitarian aid and women and girls. 
So what's the government saying? Sorry, developing world, we know we broke these commitments before and that lost a lot of your trust. Oh, we're now going to break the commitments we made later on. So the commitments they made in 2021, we're now breaking our excuse. Oh, well, COVID-19 happened. Sorry, we were, you know, we did think that we should transfer you this money to adapt to the climate change that we created. But there was a pandemic, did you notice? Well, the problem with that, the pandemic didn't just hit us, right? So these same developing countries who've been promised this money by us, and now we're, we're breaking that pledge, they were also hit by COVID-19. They were also hit by COVID-19. So it seems a little bit ridiculous to say that now they should suffer. We as a country, we're a rich country, we could deal with COVID-19 better than those developing countries. So for us now to say, we're going to break all those pledges we made again because of a crisis that also affected them just seems a little bit ridiculous to me. How can possibly we ask these countries to come to future climate negotiations and take anything agreed seriously? You might remember that a this, this idea that Sunak would miss this target, so this funding target, this climate finance pledge, was cited when Zach Goldsmith resigned. So he was a former environment minister. He's now told The Guardian this, the low levels of expenditure so far combined with the decision to define our spending on Afghan and Ukrainian refugees here in the UK as aid, something other countries have not done, means it is going to be virtually impossible to honour the promise. The hockey stick of spending will be so steep that whoever is in government after the next election would have to savagely slash humanitarian, education, health and other funding in order to hit the £11.6 billion target. So even while it is technically possible to claim we will honour the pledge, the next government will simply not be able to. He says, small island states in particular whose votes in the UN are no less valuable than ours and which are routinely needed by us will be left feeling utterly betrayed given around 25 Commonwealth countries are small island states, as well as our interests in the Pacific and Caribbean. The geopolitical repercussions will be far-reaching and our reputation as a reliable partner will simply be shredded. The Guardian also quotes a response from the Environment Minister of Gabon, which is a country in West Africa. So he said, this is called Lee White. The climate crisis is such that every country has to contribute to the solution. Gabon is 88% covered by tropical rainforests. We have maintained deforestation below 0.1% over five decades and net absorb over 100 million tonnes of CO2 annually. Few countries are doing more for the planet. Developed nations, particularly the UK, which was at the origin of the Industrial Revolution, have to do the heavy lifting. But all too often, they make false promises and fail to provide true leadership or even honour their modest financial commitments. Well said, right? Well said. So, as I say, you know, responsibility is principally from the developed world, which industrialized first, and obviously we had the Industrial Revolution. Lots and lots of CO2 put into the air because we're richer, but also because where we are geographically, climate change is going to affect us in a less disastrous manner than it will many countries in the global south, which are already, you know, hotter. So if we get a few degrees warmer, you know, it, it's going to cause problems. There will be people who die of heat stroke. You know, it's, it's, it's going to be a problem, but it's not going to be as disastrous as if you are a low-lying country in the global south, so to say Bangladesh, right? So, so we have caused the problem. Other people are suffering. There was, you know, some recognition of that in COP in 2009, so the, the conference of the parties, the climate negotiations in 2009, they said, oh, potentially, yeah, we, we should recognize this. We'll transfer you some money. Um, in return, can you please develop in a greener way than we did, which is essentially what we're saying to the developed world, developing world, sorry. And now we broke that promise and we've broken another promise. So it's, it's, it, it, it's not climate leadership. I mean, it's the complete opposite, isn't it?
Talked about things which are a bit more ridiculous than I think this very meaningful change. Um, it was a little bit chilly in the UK yesterday, which got the climate skeptics online excited. Now, Isabel Oakeshott is not just actually a climate skeptic online. She's also the international editor at Talk TV, which is the Rupert Murdoch-owned TV channel. Now, she tweeted this. Amazing how triggered the climate change nuts are when confronted with weather that doesn't suit their narrative. Quote, oh, but there are still floods in Bangladesh, etc., etc. Where's Greta when it's woolly jumpers in July? Now, of course, climate change isn't about the weather on any particular day. It's about average temperatures over time. But even if we were to play Isabel's silly game and look at any single day, this tweet was remarkably badly timed. Because while it was chilly in London yesterday, it was globally, now this is, this is significant, globally the hottest day ever on record. The hottest day ever on record. This is from The Guardian. Tuesday was world's hottest day on record, breaking Monday's record. So the record before Tuesday was the day before. Um, average temperature hit 17.18 degrees, and experts expect record to be broken again very soon. And we can see the chart here, which shows how, how phenomenal it is. It shows average daily global temperatures over time. On the bottom axis are the days of the calendar year. So it goes from January to the 31st of December, of course. And each squiggly line here shows the temperature on each of those days um, in every year between 1979 and the present. Now, as you can see, both 2022, which is the blue line, that was much hotter than average, and this year um, is proving to be even hotter. Yesterday's average global air temperature was 17.18 degrees Celsius. On Monday, it was 17.01. Now, the previous record was set in 2016 when average temperatures hit 16.92 degrees. So we've completely blown out of the water that previous record on two days in a row. Moya, neither as a climate scientist, what I do want though is your, your, your take on the timing of this tweet. Like you couldn't make it up. It's the hottest day ever recorded globally. So you're looking at average global temperatures across the world. And a commentator who is the international editor of a major UK broadcaster has looked out of her window, said, oh, it's pretty chilly. Maybe climate change doesn't exist. Both Isabel Oakeshott's comments and Rishi Sunak's rolling back on the pledge made to fund, you know, climate sustainable development in developing countries, both speak to this wider disease that really is rifling through the brains of right-wingers and conservative commentators. And that is short-termism. These people cannot see beyond the end of the day. All they see is the immediate reaction to something. For example, you look at, you know, Isabel Oakeshott's comments. Oh, it's raining outside, so they cannot possibly be getting hotter. She can't see anything other than, you know, rain as an example that the planet isn't heating up. She doesn't understand that extreme weather events and, you know, something like increasing amounts of thunderstorms for after heat waves might actually be indicative of a changing climate. Um, and the climate pledges we were talking about, I feel like the Tory government at the moment purely exists to react. So many of their pledges are done in reaction to what they see as a PR crisis. Uh, they're done in order to bolster the image of this government as some as one that takes like decisive action here and now on this issue immediately. But that's not, unfortunately, a category that climate action fits into. Climate action is about really long-term, big spending, big investment in an entire green revolution. That's the only thing that's going to really tackle head-on uh, climate change and maybe allow us to adapt 
to the existing climate change that's going on because we've already got past a point where we can stop in its tracks. And now it really is about a case of adaptation management and minimizing the future impact that our changing climate will have upon the society. Um, but someone like Rishi Sunak, who made the environment one of his key pledges, in the here and now, the crises that he sees in front of him, he thinks he has to deal with them much sooner, but he doesn't seem to realize that there won't be these crises to deal with. It won't matter if the climate continues to heat up in the manner that has, if the extreme weather events that we've seen so frequently, you know, Isabel Oakshot talks about rain. Have you seen the flooding in London? The flooding in London that has happened repeatedly year on year because of the crumbling infrastructure that cannot deal with extreme weather events. The wildfires that happened last year, we had wildfires in, I think it was Dagenham. These are not normal weather events. These are not things that have been traditionally part of the British summer. And it does feel a lot like the age-old metaphor, you know, frogs in a pot, if it slowly heats up, they don't notice they're boiling to death. Well, we've been slowly boiling to death and a lot of people have woken up to it, but the government, the people in charge and the commentators who help direct that policy that they're constantly reacting to through means of, you know, sensations about things that don't matter, such as small boats, rather than focusing on what does matter, the climate, less sexy perhaps, um, they are, they're not noticing they're boiling to death and they're taking us all with them. Navarro Media is a people-powered organization and we do appreciate your super chats. It is the regular subscribers, the regular donors that really keeps this organization rolling along. Um, and this show is only possible because of your support. If you want to um, offer your support, um, do go to navarromedia.com slash support said support many times in those few sentences. Um, the link is in the description. We really do appreciate it. Next story. The dispute between Britain's rail bosses and rail workers looks set to get uglier. That's because the Rail Delivery Group, that's an industry body, has announced the closure of almost all of the 1,007 remaining ticket offices across Britain's train stations. Um, they plan for the closures, which will apply to all but the busiest stations, to be complete within three years. This is how the chief executive of the Rail Delivery Group justified the decision. Jacqueline Starr, who is the chief exec, says, The ways our customers buy tickets has changed, and it's time for the railway to change with them. With just 12% of tickets being sold from ticket offices last year, and 99% of those transactions being available on ticket vending machines or online, our proposals would mean more staff on hand to give face-to-face -face help, with a much wider range of support, from journey planning to finding the right ticket, and helping those with accessibility needs. The rail unions are not impressed, Mick Lynch said this. The decision to close up to a 1,000 ticket offices and to issue hundreds of redundancy notices to staff is a savage attack on railway workers, their families, and the travelling public. Travellers will be forced to rely on apps and remote mobile teams to be available to assist them, rather than having trained staff on stations. This is catastrophic for elderly, disabled, and vulnerable passengers trying to access the rail network. Some of the train operators issuing our members with statutory redundancy notices today are cutting two-thirds of their workforce. It is clear that closing ticket offices has has got nothing to do with modernization and is a thinly veiled plan to gut our railways of station staff. The point Mick Lynch makes about disabled passengers seems particularly apposite. Now, according to The Guardian, the Royal National Institute of Blind People said the closure would have a hugely detrimental impact on blind and partially sighted people's ability to buy tickets, arrange assistance, and critically travel independently. And the Royal National Institute of the Blind cited research that showed only three percent could use a vending machine without problems. That's 3% of blind people or partially sighted people. 
I'm quite passionate about rail travel. You know, I can't drive. So it's one of the major ways that I get around. And I grew up in a really rural area. So the trains were some of the only things connecting us, especially as bus services got ever more snipped. Another space where we are seeing vital services being stripped back. And the idea that, you know, over a thousand ticket offices will close is just part and parcel of this peeling away at our rail services until it's almost impossible to make a journey unless you are, uh, you know, a person who has full functionality, is fully abled, can use a smartphone, has enough money in your bank account. All the people who are probably more likely on balance to be able to take a car, which I don't think they should be resorting to that. I think that rail travel should be made so good in this country that people don't want to take a car. But the people who most need things like rail travel, need that public transport option, are being completely shut out of it. it this is not just a case of workers losing jobs, which is a really vital pillar of it, but also the people who are going to lose out on access to rail travel. And particularly looking at where these closures are going to be located. If you look at, you know, the closures announced by Liner, I think only one ticket office in the whole of the Northeast in Newcastle is planned to keep open. And they say, oh, we'll still have people on platforms, we'll still have people there. It's not the same as having a hub where people know to go to to get information, to get train tickets. I remember when the government in 2022, I think it was, brought in the increased fines if you hadn't bought a ticket when you were already on the train if you before you boarded the train the buy before you board rule and before you get fined about 20 pounds it would be double the price of a ticket to the next station i already think that's kind of a ridiculous rule some people don't know exactly where they're going before they get on you might not see a conductor before you get on the train because of the shrinking of services so the idea that you'd have to be able to buy a ticket on a smartphone before you get on a train service is already making it inaccessible. But now that has increased to £100. So imagine the ticket office is closed. You're someone who can't use um, a smartphone for whatever reason. You don't have access to it. You're somebody who perhaps might be you know, more cash only. You struggle, you're elderly. You, you manage to get on the train. You get on this train and you're told, OK, well, you haven't been able to buy a ticket beforehand. It's not your fault, but we're still going to find you £100 because you haven't actually purchased this ticket. People who... Is again, at least able to play these kind of premiums, which often we call the poverty premiums or the marginalised premiums, are going to be liable for more of these fines. It just doesn't make sense to me. And then you think about, as you discussed, Michael, you know, people who won't be able to actually physically access the station. There was lots of stories going around social media today about people who, you know, need extra help such as somebody who uses a wheelchair or somebody who might be taking a pram. When ticket offices are closed, the lift operation tends to be reduced or non-existent altogether because they need authorization to use the lift. And if there is not somebody on the platform, because as I greatly suspect, I, I think that ticket that these rail companies who will do anything to shave off uh, extra costs and increase the profits and dividends that they're sending to their shareholders will end up, you know, not actually putting someone on the station or saying they can do without, or it will be something where the person who's meant to be manning that station arrives on the most recent train and then gets on the most recent train. So I do think there'll be a lot of instances where the tra train station could be completely unmanned. Who's going to operate the lift then? Who's going to make sure someone has access? Where do you go? It's just such a shame. We have one of the oldest rail systems, I think, in the world. Um, and the fact that it is in such a state now and that the government, again, 
just don't seem to really want to do anything about it. And it's bad enough in London. If you look at the rest of the country, it's particularly England, but also Wales, you I was saying this on another show, you literally cannot, in some places, take a train from South Wales to North Wales. You have to go over the border to England and then back again because the rail services are so poorly maintained and have been cut back so much. It is an absolute travesty. People cannot make a direct journey on public transport in 2023. And it's even more of a travesty that the people who are meant to be directing this from both the rail bosses to the government are so removed from this problem that they don't actually give a toss about whether people can do that. God, it really, really gets my back up. I think the publicly accessible transport that is low cost, affordable and fully able for people to just get on it and go to their destination is one of the key tenets of a functioning society. And right now, this is not functioning at all. We often celebrate our sort of differences and disagreements among the regular um, Navarra Live hosts and co-hosts. But I think something we all have in common is that none of us can drive. I don't think there is a regular host or co-host at the Navarra Live who can drive. Um, maybe one day one of us will learn and they can drive us around. Let's go straight to our next story. Nick Ferrari can't handle the truth on Palestine. Watch how he responds to this caller who opposes the government ban on public bodies boycotting Israel and territories occupied by Israel. This extremely bloody stupid racist bill has got to be challenged by that raft of people that have got themselves together. This is absolutely disgusting. And what I'm really annoyed about, it is fundamentally undemocratic. The current government cannot bind the hands of future governments ad infinitum. It's wrong. And you keep saying this, this, that the BDS is to boycott Israel. From my understanding, they only boycott goods from the illegal settlements, which contravene international law. And they also do not wish to deal with companies why? that support the illegal settlements. Why it's not a ban he... on Israel per se. Why and should... you keep, you keep mis mischaracterizing the, the functions of BDS. Why should a university effectively have its own foreign policy? We all have a fundamental right to support international law. There is the, the, the uh, racist apartheid regime in Israel keeps millions of people subjugated um, in the world's largest open-air prison. Right, you're, 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 you're saying extraordinary inflammatory things. It is, of course, the only de de democratically elected government in the whole region. It's only, it was, it's like South Africa. No, 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 like, I, no, 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 you see, now you are starting to deliberately cause offence. So that's a yellow card. Please, please bear in mind the language that you're using here. No, and you this, just listen to me, no, Nick, and stop talking over me. Well, if it you is continue only to make inflammatory remarks, what you don't think you realise, Claire, is no one's hearing you because I have a control here. So I have to, I, I'm one, I want to hear, I want to hear your robust views but I have to obviously have an ear for people who are listening and are getting offended. So back to the points you want to make. Please, it's, go ahead. It's, uh, it's only a democracy for a certain section of society. Now, all these people are no, saying... everyone votes, Claire. Well, sorry, once you reach a certain age, everyone votes in Israel. It's only a democracy. The, de the democratic rules are not applied universally. But my point, my salient point is this, that is undemocratic for a current government to um, tie the hands of future governments. It is, fun it is well, a, a fundamental human right a for, a, for um, a university, a for anybody to say we will, not, law, we will not get involved in anything no, which breaks on, international on, law. So according to Nick Ferrari, calling Israel a racist and apartheid regime is extraordinarily inflammatory. 
And if you compare it to South Africa, you get a yellow card. Like, how patronizing can you get? You get subjected to his mute button. He seemed like he felt very powerful there. Don't you know I can mute you if you say anything I find offensive, or which I assume someone in the audience might find offensive? Well, perhaps Nick Ferrari should read the reports by Amnesty International, by Human Rights Watch, or by the Israeli NGO Betzalem, who have all judged that Israel is indeed an apartheid regime. Now, this is how Amnesty introduced their report on the issue. Amnesty International's new investigation shows that Israel imposes a system of oppression and domination against Palestinians across all areas under its control, in Israel and the occupied Palestinian territories, and against Palestinian refugees in order to benefit Jewish Israelis. This amounts to apartheid as prohibited in international law. Laws, policies, and practices which are intended to maintain a cruel system of control over Palestinians have left them fragmented geographically and politically, frequently impoverished, and in a constant state of fear and insecurity. Now, Amnesty also give examples of the policies and practices that enforce this system of control. Um, So they say some examples of this system in practice are severe movement restrictions in the West Bank enforced through a network of checkpoints and road closures. This is combined with a permit system which forces Palestinians who wish to visit other areas of the occupied Palestinian territories to seek the Israeli military's permission superior nationality status for Jewish citizens of Israel that is distinct from citizenship and the basis for different treatment of Jewish and non-Jewish citizens. Palestinians are denied that status. They also say systematic denial of building permits to Palestinians in East Jerusalem um, is another form of this system in practice, which results in repeated home demolitions and forced evictions. The expansion of illegal settlements in East Jerusalem forces Palestinians out of their homes and confines the Palestinian population to progressively smaller enclaves. And two more Examples, um, they said the denial of Palestinian refugees' internationally protected right to return. Israel bars displaced Palestinian families from returning to their former villages or homes in Israel and the occupied Palestinian territories in order to retain control over demographics to keep that Jewish majority. And then their final example, restrictions on access to land and fishing areas in the Gaza Strip, which exacerbate the socio-economic impact of Israel's illegal blockade. Um, That's extraordinarily inflammatory from Amnesty International there. Earlier today, there was a very telling BBC interview with a former Israeli prime minister um, who, where the presenter was talking to this um, Israeli prime minister, prime minister and saying, you know, kids are being killed. And he got very, very defensive and said, no, it's militants. These aren't seven-year-old kids. They're actually militants. It's militants, militants. But the BBC interviewer pressed the point in a way that I have not seen the BBC do um, in sort of articulate the actual reality of what's going on there in a very long time. And we're seeing this across other media. Conflict is being swapped out for Israeli aggression more and more. Um, But at the same time, as I said, right-wing politicians, right-wing commentators who support the apartheid regime and support the, uh, the oppression that the Israeli state visits upon the Palestinian people and in the occupied territories are getting more defensive because they can sense that the sort of uh, argument they've made before, which was this is an equal conflict, there's, it's a two-sided story, you know, both as bad as each other, is slipping away in the face of continued video evidence, continued pictures, continued testimony across everything from social media to, you know, online platforms like YouTube, etc. And so you get the Nick Ferraris of this world who are defending this tooth and nail, and you get things like Michael Gove's spearheaded 
BDS bill in the UK, which if people are not aware of this, what this is, it is a bill that primarily wants to target the boycott sanctions, um, no, boycott, divestment and sanctions movement, which is used um, as a way to try and delegitimize Israel and get people, you know, institutions like churches, councils, etc., to not invest in companies or work with companies or or organizations that have financial interests in Israel or are linked to Israeli organizations that are aiding the military operations there. Um, and this bill was brought in initially, I think, during Boris Johnson's term. Uh, as I said, it's been spearheaded by Gove. However, there's been a massive backlash to it within Parliament itself, and even Labour are now opposing it. So they proposed an amendment which actually got the bill, but over 50 Tory MPs as well have have led a rebellion on this bill. And the government who are championing it have really been taken aback by how much of a backlash there is this bill. Um, you know, Labour's, uh, Labour's opposition to it, is, sadly, is not just based in personal solidarity. They're saying that's just about the human rights issue and the fact that it could be so broadly applied to other campaigns. You've got like Lisa Nandy going out being like, well, you know, BDS is bad, but this bill is worse, which is n- not the line we want to take. But it's fascinating to see that there has actually been a backlash to it, that there has been opposition to it, and that there is, for the first time, I would say, in several years, what I see as a bit of a groundswell in people who feel able to stand up and say, actually, we need to stand with Palestine again. We need to oppose Israeli aggression and the increasing incursions upon Palestinian land that are being made. You know, there's about 5,000 new homes planned illegally in the West Bank that was signed off in June by the government. Um, and it's it's been the first time in years I've seen this without people being scared that saying, you know, Palestinian solidarity somehow equates to anti-Semitism, which was the, the, the line that was extraordinarily effective and used by the right wing to silence people before. What I would say, however, is is really, really depressing that it has taken this level of overt aggression, of overt violence from the Israeli state in order for people to finally feel like they can stand up and say, hang on, this is this is not okay again. This is we we should have been standing with Palestine this whole time. And right now we have unfortunately so many right wingers within our government that something like the BDS bill might be defeated on its own terms, which is a great victory, but we will see more and more attempts to bring back that line, bring back that idea that, you know, you can't talk about Palestinian solidarity without it being equated to anti-Semitism. Um, and the fact that it has taken this many lives lost, this and also the, a government being in place that is so unequivocally far right in Israel that it cannot be denied. Only then does it seem like the media feels safe to push back against the um the policies and the regime that's going on there. Only now, once also the Israeli population have um, opposed things like, you know, the attempt to overrule the Supreme Court and attempt to take away their rights, do does the media, does, you know, more centrist politicians, people who haven't historically stood past time, feel like it's okay to say, actually, this is too much. It's always been too much. It's been too much from the moment that that land was taken away. Let's go straight on. Remind yourselves of what was perhaps the lowest point of the 2019 election. We have to get real because climate emergency is a real problem. Climate change is a problem, despite what Nigel thinks. But these Would also... you nationalise sausages? <laughs> no. I enjoyed Raina's facial expression in response to that ridiculous question from the BBC host. But three years on, the scaremongering about bog-standard social democracy has now reached even more 
ridiculous heights. Tory MP Miriam Cates has given this warning. Labour wants to nationalise our children. Um, And she's saying the party's plan for graduate-led nurseries isn't just costly, it's a sinister attack on the role of parents. Uh, So let's look at how she has arrived at this rather stark conclusion. Um, So Miriam Cates writes this. The practical and financial details need careful analysis, but it is the social implications of this policy that are most concerning. Speaking this week, Bridget Phillipson, the Shadow Education Secretary, said that you can make the biggest impact in the early years. Experts certainly agree that the care given between birth and age two has more influence on a child's future than at any time in their life. But who is the you to whom Phillipson refers? The implication is that it is the state that can have the biggest impact in a child's early life, and by extension, that this must be achieved by superseding the role of the parent. The logical conclusion is that the role of family should be diminished and responsibility for raising children transferred to the state. Otherwise, there will always be inequality. This is a deeply troubling stance, although not a surprising one. Left-wing thinkers are suspicious of families and parents, and socialist movements across the world promote universal state childcare from infancy. How sinister! Um, It is true that many families struggle and some parents are doing a poor job of raising their children, but it doesn't follow that the state will do a better job. The bond between parents and children, the family, is the foundation of society, and the state should be looking to strengthen rather than weaken that bond. If we actually were nationalising children, I think we'd have a lot more than just the 400 maintained, state-maintained nurseries that we currently have in England. Um, this Miriam Cates piece is, I think, it's obviously ludicrous, but it's, it's a fantastic little sleight of hand. If you ever want a lesson in how to redirect something that is, has no real bearing on your particular bugbear, your particular sort of like main issue this is a really wonderful case in point of someone managing to take one line and be like ah but here's a tenuous link to the thing i actually really want to talk about um which is something they teach you in media training constantly if you're having to go on the likes of sky news etc um this this policy obviously doesn't really have anything to do with the breakdown of the nuclear family which is kate's um favorite topic to talk about she is one of the new national conservatives she's really socially conservative she's an evangelical christian she's made in the mold of i would say american republican evangelicals and mirrors their rhetoric which is why you get some real batshit stuff from them um but this what she's talking about here is labor's pledge to uh bring graduate teachings into nurseries which I do think deserves a bit more scrutiny. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting idea, but it's, as someone said, I think when they were talking about this, it's kind of front-loading the issue rather than actually tackling the key problems. Labour have been, you know, they want to improve the education system, they say, but they have been loath to really commit more spending to it beyond this 1.6 billion that they say is going to be raised by tax removing tax breaks from private schools. Great. But if you're, they, they say, okay, we want to bring graduate level teachers into nurseries well all state maintained nurseries right now are led by graduate level trained teachers educators etc that would only be about 400 nurseries as i said if it's only state nurseries we're applying this to there's thousands of private nurseries here and the main thing is about pay here if you're going to bring teaching staff into nurseries first of all nursery staff anyway you can get more in perhaps retail than you might in nursery um in 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 nursery sector right now but also teachers are paid pittance what do we open the show with the neu are currently out on strike i think for the sixth day this year because teachers are paid so little so if you're getting graduate levels of um 
graduate level teachers into nurseries, the pay is going to have to go up. The whole thing is not that people don't want to do these careers per se. It's that there's no money in them and there's no money to really do them. I have a friend right now who is so wedded to teaching. She's a wonderful teacher. She teaches early years children. She's um, training at the moment. She's about to start her training contract and she works specifically with SEN kids, which is, I think, special educational needs kids. She's about to start her teacher training, right? She's doing an unsalaried role for two years. All she will have to live on is a bursary and grant, which would be fine if that bursary and grant actually covered her living costs, but it doesn't. And she lives in London. How do you how do you ever, you know, how do people afford to go into this career, even the ones that are really passionate about it, if they cannot, if the money that is put aside for them doesn't even cover their living costs? They're not going to do it full stop. Um, she can only do it because she has a partner who is able to help her out with the costs. That is not going to be true of everyone. And that's the same thing with this plan to bring graduate level teachers into nurseries. If there's the costs are literally not adding up. And until Labour is ready to commit more to spending on education, then any plans they have are going to be hamstrung by the fact that they just won't overlook this massive obstacle that's in the way. And it's kind of like, it's fine, it will work out. How will it work out? I don't get it. So let's put aside Miriam Cates for a moment because Miriam Cates, as entertaining as she is, is is quite a fringe voice and I don't want to spend too much time on her, but really talk about the problems that are facing nursery school level teachers and education educators as a whole in this country, which primarily is pay and recruitment, which are both linked together from the moment they start training. You won't get graduate level train teachers trained up if you don't give them a salary or training bursary that actually allows them to live in the first place. I assume um, Labour won't be particularly threatened by this line of argument from Miriam Cates. And if, if Sunak were to try and make a wedge issue, Labour want to introduce more free childcare, I don't think that would be a vote winner. Thank you for watching this evening. Remember to come back here tomorrow at 6pm. You've been watching Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.